Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Forster CX Cast. Sam Stern joined, as always, by my co-host, Jenny Wise. Hi, Jenny. Hi, everyone. And from far, far away, we have traveling all the way to Cambridge just to record a podcast with us, our colleague from San Francisco, Ryan Hart. Hi, Ryan. Hi, everyone. Brian, we wanted to talk to you as we are still here very much in New Year's resolution territory at the beginning of 2018 about your recent uh, predictions around customer experience for 2018. And to put a fine point on it, uh, the title of the report that we're going to talk about today is The Crisis of Trust and How Smart Brands Will Shape Customer Experience and Response. So I think the title suggests a starting point for our conversation today. How would you characterize the crisis and trust that we're facing today? I should preface that by saying, although I wrote the report, it is a collective effort. So we, we work together, we bounced off ideas together, and these are what we see are in the market, where companies are struggling, where the market is moving. Um, and quite frankly, it's a very trying time for not only customers in the U.S. and around the world, but you know, obviously brands that are struggling to deal with what we see is the crisis of trust. And so when we talk about the crisis of trust, some people talk in terms of we are now in this post-truth era. From the beginning of time, people have been saying things like that, but I think no one will dispute that with customer confidence as high as it is, with customers' expectations rising by every uh, data point that you look out there and and you, you see, it's funny that customers trust in brands, trust in executives, politicians that play loose with the truth, that are spreading these falsehoods over platforms on the internet, have now made it even more critical that brands are value-based selling and are rooted in their heritage, their legacy, and they're very much true to their brand promise to the market. Yeah. And would you that's because consumers are so vigilant these days about being dishonest or or disingenuous or playing fast and loose with the truth. Is that is that why it's even more important for brands to to be that way because people are looking for it? Or is it has something else changed? I think certainly people are attuned to this. And to take an example of Pepsi commercial with Kendall Jenner. Mm-hmm. Obviously, and just for our listeners, in case you don't know, this is where Kendall Jenner, who's a, a model, I think, um, solves, quote unquote, right. a uh, conflict between police and protesters by offering a police officer a Pepsi. Correct. And as, there was, uh, you can imagine that, the, that sparked a lot yeah. of uh, backlash. A really simple solution to, to that it. idea, right? One of the Kardashians, yes. Right. She's going to solve that. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. On the back of the Black Lives Matter protests, Pepsi thought that they would say, oh, we're going we're gonna to portray a, a symbol of unity. And really, they did something that very quickly did something that is very rare on the internet, which is within 48 hours, you basically unify people against one <laughs> thing. So um, you, you raise a good point. Yes. Congratulations, um, Pepsi. You did unify people. <laughs> yes. Unified them against uh, the fact that they borrow our own values. Yeah. And so I speak to that in the report. Very interesting, you know, and I think we were talking just before the the podcast about this, that uh, Bernice King, who is uh, the youngest child of the slain civil rights leader, Martin Luther King, she tweeted a photo of him being withheld by a protest officer. And she said in her tweet, if only daddy would have known about the power of Pepsi. On the back of that, they aren't the only ones. Certainly um, Commonwealth Bank in uh, Australia that's dealing with a deep scandal around money laundering. You have a variety of other instances 
you know, obviously Apple is dealing with the big fallout now with the fact that they are uh, seemingly deceitfully trying to get people to buy new iPhones by accelerating the, the, the demise of the battery and slowing down the operating systems. So you have a lot of companies that seem to be doing underhanded things. And I think it feels like a challenge for us in writing this report is that whatever examples we were grabbing at the moment, like the mm-hmm. Kendall Jenner one, yes. are so buried in the news cycle by these long-running trickle of additional examples, right? Yes. The, the Apple one being just out now Absolutely. about the batteries and you know, probably next week we'll have a new one yes. to be obsessing over. Does that speak to the fact that why this is so important is that there's a magnifying glass on it mm-hmm. because of social media and these larger trends that the stories fly so much more and are so much more magnified than they've ever been before. Absolutely. And that's why that's something brands should really be thinking about now. I think you're absolutely right, Jennifer, because not only is the magnifying glass on it, but I mean, really, this is the reality that we live in. I mean, now... People are quick to defend their values and power to actually go and share their their viewpoints on on these issues. So quite frankly, I, I have sometimes talking with some clients that will go unnamed that says, what values should we be rallying around? Which to me, that's a, that's a false bottom question because <laughs> you basically look at your own heritage, your own legacy as a company. Why were you, why were you established? What was the point of your founder? What was his vision? How do you relate that to what you stand for as a company? And then how do you actually deliver value, value-based experiences? So part of one of my predictions is really about how these type of value-based brands are going to break away in, in 2018 on the back of, of this big, larger movement. So for those brands to expand on that then, we're saying those that have the values and show them break away, what are the other companies doing? Is it yeah. that they don't have defined values that they're acting on or they're, I don't know, there's enough substance there? What does that mean? I think people are quick to see inauthentic mm-hmm. values. Mm-hmm. People are, are quick to call out and are much more empowered to, to pinpoint sometimes when brands are being inauthentic or, and not actually true to who they are or, or what their value proposition is to the market. And so I think, you know, this is certainly one point of it. All of the predictions, there was four predictions for 2018, and I think all of those fall in under this umbrella that, that we're dealing with this crisis of trust. One of the other key predictions that we came up with is that the idea that brands now are struggling to be everything to everyone and being the jack of all trades is not going to be the differentiator in the market anymore. We are now seeing proof in our customer experience index that actually brands that have a very specified niche or community that they serve exceptionally well are delivering higher quality customer experiences and customers are actually more active advocates of those type of brands than say something that is uh, a Walmart or an Amazon. A very good point. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you look at Amazon, which for a long time I would go around the world and I would talk to companies, I say, well, you know, you need to aspire to be an Amazon, you know, which is one of the leading customer experience leaders in every market that they operate in. Now you look at their customer experience index scores. Again, this is an objective measure of what the customers are saying. They've dropped now to number 12. We've watched them drop over the last three years and more specialty brands such as Etsy, such as QVS, such as, you know, Newegg, for example. Those are companies that are more focused and serve communities of customers that are Argent fans of that brand very, very well. So it sort of gets to, you know, you if you are more focused, then you can actually 
maybe live your values more because if you're turning people off, that's okay because you're focusing on this really specific niche. Is that sort of how it plays out? Sure. I would never advise that any companies turn away customers or turn their back on certain types of customers, certainly, but maybe it's it goes back to segmentation 101 or how can you identify some of your core fans or your right. your most mm-hmm. feverishly loyal customers, serve them better, serve them more aligned and more with more relevant content and, and value in a way that you can also better serve as well other customers that are in similar groups, have similar demographic yeah. interests, desires. I, I mean, I think I, I it's not to dispute your point. I, I think it's just a, such a fascinating and tricky area for a brand, right? You think, take Chick-fil-A, who you cite in the the report, as we, we reference in the report, unapologetic about being closed on Sundays. When you dig in there, right, there's a strong religious connection there that could be off-putting for some potential customers. And the founder, and, and I think still active chairman, yep. is very overt about that and about who he thinks Chick-fil-A is for and not for. And, and for some people, that's very activating, you know, stand in line for Chick-fil-A on Chick-fil-A day when that happened, or to not ever go to Chick-fil-A or to oppose it coming to your community as, as the former Boston mayor did. And, you know, then on the other side, Patagonia was saying, you know, Trump's taking away your land when he yep. changed some, some statute in about Utah uh, public monuments or something. And for people who were probably disposed to be Patagonia fans, right, they would agree. For others who, you know, maybe would fit the market but had voted for the president or, you know, are outdoorsy, but, you know, certainly consider themselves on on the libertarian side of who should own uh, these lands, that probably made them less likely. And so I think both examples are ones where those companies are absolutely being true to their values. And yet they are, you know, knowingly, I think, turning off a set of customers. But if you actually looked at Chick-fil-A's financial performance... They're absolutely killing it compared to some of the other competitors in that space are actually really struggling to drive new revenue, strive to expand stores, whereas, you know, Chick-fil-A is doing the opposite. To me, it makes sense for Chick-fil-A and it makes sense for Patagonia. But, you know, if I'm Popeyes, I can't out, you know, I'm not going to close on Sundays too, and that'd be Mm. a borrowing of values. Yes. But do I become, you know, like what, I I guess that's where I struggle is for, if I'm looking at Chick-fil-A, is it, do I you know, close on Saturdays and go after a different religious uh, denomination? Or do I um, say we're you know, proudly non-denominational? Like how, how do you bring this out for another brand? Sure. So again, it's going to the Chick-fil-A example. So, well, it's actually been debunked that a lot of that's religious. I mean, so actually you look at their mission statement, uh, Chick-fil-A, and it, it says, um, you know, that S. Truett Cathy, who basically is, is the founder of that company, he basically says, we allow a day off so that people can observe if they would like, so they can have time with their families, so they can take time off of responsibilities of work. So really what he's doing is he's actually valuing this employee experience. And mm-hmm. he's actually saying, you know, we want to give some time back to our employees as opposed to just working them. And, and a good example of that, and, and I've, I've used it in, in a variety of, of speeches that I've given, is, you know, uh, the opening of the Mercedes-Benz Stadium in, for the Atlanta Falcons um, in Atlanta. Right. And the fact that they use that, you know, out of those nine home games that they have, I believe it's nine home games there, only one of them will actually be there that's not on a Sunday. Right, right. And all of those days that they're playing there, they'll be closed. I, I, I saw that one analyst said that's about $260 million that they're leaving on the table. So it's not about the money. It's a, it's about this valuing the employee experience. So to answer your question, it's really looking at 
what was really the roots of why you were established as a company? What was your vision? I think KPMG recently did a rebranding of their logo. And instead, you know, they, they could invest a lot of money with a lot of agencies and done some flashy logo with the brand and then the different coloring and, and, you know, they could go through that whole process. But actually what they did is they went back to the founding of KPMG and on a napkin, the founder basically wrote what the KPMG logo might look like. Now, it wasn't actually ever used, I don't believe, in the company. But going back now to why we were founded, what do we stand for? What's the vision of our founder or of, of our founders or, or our roots? And then expressing that in a very authentic manner, I think, is really the key to having authentic, valued-based experiences Yeah, that are aligned to your brand, to your six vision, and then to a tactical behavior-driven or guided strategy through your CX strategy. Yeah. I And I, I hear that. I think... The assumption that's there that might not be true for all brands, but I think I think it is. It, it's probably close, but it's that you were founded on something and something good, mm-hmm. something worth reinvigorating. That's probably true for most brands, but I think there's some where maybe there's yeah. not that clarity or that explicit set of values that they were founded on. And maybe that's the prediction, right? Those are the brands that will be adrift in, mm. in this new world where there is no core that they can go back to that they can be, you know, sort of connected to. So something I would say to that and an interesting conversation I had with one of the other analysts, Jim Nail, was about the idea that in the past, maybe companies have done things differently or done things wrong. Maybe they were releasing a lot of chemicals into a local river or they polluted or they did something. But how have they changed now? How have they evolved as a company? People can tell that story, tell Mm. the story about how... Mm We weren't clean as white linen in the past. We've done things, but now we've now we've actually moved on and we're reinvigorated ourselves around ecology or a green planet yeah. or these new refresh values. That's authentic. I mean, that's a story. People love a story and people love the brand story. That's a great answer, right? That if you don't have values or they were maybe they were the wrong values in today's market, right? If you were founded long enough ago that they're a bit of an anachronism now. Yeah. Um, find new values that will resonate and be live them and be true yeah. to them. And, and that's that's an okay recipe. And I, and I like as well your point about be honest about the progression here, that you might have been GE dumping chemicals into the Hudson River, but you're better now. You're, you've changed, but you, you acknowledge your past, right? We're not pretending it didn't happen. That's a powerful story. One of the, the key things I would say that to any brand, though, around this is you're not aligning to your customer's values. That's a bad strategy. You're aligning to your values as a company. So... You look at like a company like, sorry to go back to Pepsi, for example, if you're going to say, oh, our our customers' values are that they believe in equality or they believe in, you know, they don't believe in gay marriage or or whatever the the issue is, you align with your values as a company and that's authentic. You don't try to align yourself with how other people are feeling in the market so that you can seemingly capture or ride a wave of enthusiasm so that you can somehow benefit financially. Yeah, but so if I can counter that, because one of the things I've been toying with in my head is you've been having this discussion about values, is that I do think there are those companies that don't have as specific values or values that are tethered to religion or these sort of deeper set values and what they want to accomplish and this really sense of purpose. Some of them did start with a more mass market approach, right? Or the value of convenience, which isn't tethered necessarily to mm-hmm. the value set that a person has. And so when we looked at you know the CX index scores and these mass market companies like the Walmarts of the world and even Amazon, who it didn't tie directly to that value set, what do they do today? And I would argue that they do want to at least tailor their communication, I guess, within the confines of their original vision statement to the user's 
and maybe not to their values, but at least to their interests. So that there is that degree of personalization and tailoring of the communication that it seems like you are serving a narrower set while not being sort of untrue to your company's purpose. I mean, I think what you are kind of getting at is that what if you were a company that was rooted in, like you said, convenience, or you saw an opportunity in the market and you jumped at it, but really you didn't have a strong identity as a, as a brand or as, as a player in that market. Right. I think everyone needs to find the story. What is their story? And they need to tell that. And I think you know, you look at uh, Kelly Price, who's done a really good report around storytelling. People love stories. Okay, so you referenced Kelly Price there and her report on storytelling, but it sort of made me also think of your second uh, or our second big prediction for this year, which is that smart companies are going to deepen customer understanding beyond the low-hanging fruit. So how will they do that? What are the sort of new techniques or new ways that they're going to deepen customer understanding? And I think to to Jenny's uh, previous question, to help get that greater alignment or fit between their values and their customers' values. It should be deepening your your understanding of the customer ecosystem. It's not necessarily deepening your understanding of the customer, but it's really about understanding that companies now have, you know, there's only so much low-hanging fruit that you can pick off the tree and still expect to, to get the same type of gains um, uh, in a customer experience. If you really want to drive long-term customer experience quality gains. It's really about diving deeper in the ecosystem. And I use an example, talk about Lloyd's Bank and you know how they've deepened their understanding about not simply just trying to shorten uh, an onboarding or authentication process. It's about actually why is compliance need to be involved? You know, what are some of the requirements of them legal? How can we actually work with these other uh, business units to really drive sustainable uh, improvements to this process. So you see that uh, time and time again, and we as analysts here at, at Forrester see that. You know, oftentimes companies will look for what what's the quick wins that I can show. You know, my boss or my executive that I'm actually improving the customer experience without me actually having to talk with people on the other side of the wall or having to work mm-hmm. with other groups. And I think the time has come now, unfortunately. That I think a lot of that low-hanging fruit is picked, and I think that to drive really good quality customer experiences for the long term, you really got to think about reorganizing your company. You really need to think about you know, getting into those deep, gnarly problems that actually, unfortunately, haven't been an easy path in the past. So we've touched on three of the four big predictions, so we might as well make a complete set here. The fourth one was about B2B firms and sort of the rise of this um, customer success management Function. What is that a response to? Why why have we seen so many B two B firms stand up this customer success role? Right. So customer success management, I think, is very genuine. I think is a, is authentically trying to ensure the success and engage in adoption of your products and your actual use of of some of the products that you sell. A new model, and I won't say it's so new. It's you know it's more than five years old now, but really in the last recent, I would say, eighteen months, we've seen a huge uptick in really. B2B companies now establishing these customer success management organizations that are post-purchase. We sell a software or a product to, to a customer, and it's no longer hands-off. I, that salesperson made their sales quota, they check the box, and then they move on. It's really about, okay, are the people using our product? Are they actually, they have questions? You know, how can we improve their knowledge? How can we gain? So it's really about enriching these relationships. And I think it's a recognition from B2B companies that your best customers are your existing customers. 
It's not about going out mm. and trying to find new customers to sell new products to. It's about really enriching the customers that you have. I mean, you have really great customers most likely now. And how can you uh, capture mer- maybe more client wallet in dealing with those existing customers and making sure that they're successful? Do you think the reason for that is because they found that there was a gap, that they would onboard customers, have all these promises, hand over the tool or technology or whatever it is, and then just say good luck? And that would cause turnover or just underutilization of uh, I think the big product? I think the in my as my understanding is really the biggest turning point there was the fact that uh, cloud-based services mm-hmm. don't move from actually selling hardware and actual physical servers and and uh, equipment to companies and then saying kind of run with it. It's now everything is available in the cloud. Companies are more and more moving to very nimble um, selection of tools and, and services uh, to fit pockets of their business. Um, in response to that, large vendor clients are struggling to to stay profitable and to generate the kind of returns that they have in the past. So the really their space for growth then is come post-purchase now through uh, enrichment of existing customers. Mm-hmm. Mm. It's almost that similar mass market conundrum that we were talking about earlier. In some senses, but when you think about the, the number of customers that a B2B company have, it's probably, and I don't have the specific data to support this, but compared to a B2C company that may have millions of customers, a B2B company may have thousands or hundreds of customers. So the mm. scale is, le- is smaller. Great. Well, Ryan, thank you for joining us. Great to have you here. Uh, listeners, we will post a link to this predictions report. And uh, hey, if you remember, bookmark it and go back at the end of the year and see if we got it right or not. I'm sure we'll get some right on the mark and some a little off as, as uh, predictions about the future are particularly difficult. So um, the report's name again is The Crisis of Trust and How Smart Brands Will Shape Customer Experience in Response. Thanks for listening. And we'll talk to you next week. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of CXCast. And remember, your customer's perception is your customer experience reality. (laughs) 